Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnavale, and I am the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. I'm joined today by our host, Peter Englert, Director of Adult Ministries at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. And today we have Anna Valeria Eisman, the Executive Director of Open Door Mission from Rochester, New York. And we're talking about why God why am I tempted to ignore poverty? Peter and John, take it away. Yeah. Wow. So uh, honestly, I, I feel like we sometimes want to ignore this question. We want to just kind of skip over it and not deal with it, especially in our culture. I, I think of myself, uh, I, I won't paint a broad picture here, but I'll just speak from my own experience. Like when there's somebody standing by the road begging for money, what's my first instinct? My first instinct is to kind of look away, to ignore. And um, I'm not necessarily proud of that, but I think that's my tendency and I need to come face to face with that. And I think this discussion is an important one to have. We need to be leaning into this discussion a little bit because poverty isn't going away around us. Poverty is there in front of us. And um, so that's where I'm approaching this conversation today. I'm kind of looking at it as a very important conversation for me to have for my soul. Peter, what are you thinking about this? You know, so in a former life, I used to be an admissions counselor for a college, and my job was to guide parents and students through getting into college and deciphering if it was the right fit. And I'll never forget a story. Um, somebody walked up to me um, and they said that a professor came up to them and they said, you know, have you ever thought of going to schools and like meeting with high school students to see if they want to come to college? And the hilarity is like, that was our job. Mm. And I just feel like poverty is the same way. It's like, well, hey, like just get them jobs. Mm. Like- or, or just feed them or just, and, and so we, we want to like grossly run to simplification. And then I think one of the other bigger problems is, you know, we're talking with Anna from Open Door. If you're not from Rochester, there's probably a lot of other organizations. We all of a sudden just have this dream to start our own organization and we're going to leave the suburbs and go to the city and we're going to, you know, raise hell with a hand basket. But it's like, there's people that like, they know what they're doing <laughs> and we could do that. So that's kind of where my thoughts on this conversation is going with poverty too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's welcome somebody who, I, I don't know, Anna, do you want to be considered an expert in this? I'm labeling you an expert, whether you can want to be considered it or not. I don't know I, that anyone I, is an expert well, in this topic. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us so for much on the, the Why God Why podcast. It's so good to have you here. And uh, you're the executive director of Open Door. Can you tell us a little bit about Open Door Mission and uh, just a general overview for people who are listening. Sure. Uh, we are a 67-year-old organization. So we have been um, exclusively in Rochester since 1952. So I hope I did the math right. Yeah. We are. Uh, we started, we actually, the first uh, uh, event that the Open Door Mission hosted was a Thanksgiving meal on Thanksgiving Day. And that was in 1952. And it really just kind of grew from there. So I believe it was in the 90s where the Men's Addiction Recovery Program started. That is a residential addiction recovery program. We have 14 beds and another 10 transitional beds for individuals who may need a little bit more time once they're uh, complete with that active recovery phase. And we also have a new 
program for women and children out in the town of Gates. So we have a transitional housing program for homeless women and children. Almost exclusively uh, referrals come from the school districts where children are classified as homeless. We also have an emergency shelter for men and women now. It is a 48-bed shelter in in an average night. In the past uh, several months, we've been sleeping in the 60s. So we've seen unprecedented numbers this season. Holy cow. Holy cow. You are doing a lot of work in the community from what you're describing there. (laughs) That would keep a person very, very busy. (laughs) Yes, it does. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So this isn't just like a side gig for you. This is your life. This is my life. Yes. It's my family's life. It's (laughs) right. Right. And I can imagine it would feel a little overwhelming at times as you look at the needs that are there. Mm -hmm. Uh, What drove you into this? So what, 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 what's kind of your life story to, to say, did you just wake up one day and you said, Hey, I want to, I want to do this with my life or, or was that a slow process? How did you get to the place where you're like, I want to kind of invest my life in reaching the city? Uh, well in, uh, 2004, my dad died very unexpectedly the Monday before Thanksgiving. My dad was my pastor, and uh, he was also someone who had come out of a, uh, he had been born again after battling an opioid addiction when he was in his 20s. And that impact was so severe on me. And I was actually in college at the time. I had a four, a six-week-old baby at the time. And the overwhelming trauma that that um, kind of... Uh, impacted me with kind of drove some of this. Honestly, if I really found a time where it kind of my life took a different turn, it was that. And and some of the things, some of the reason for that had to do with learning some of the things that my dad was struggling with as a leader, as a leader in the church, as a leader in the community, and realizing that every single person, no matter their position, really just wants to be heard. And so as part of my grief, I ended up saying, I really just want to show love and mercy on other people. And how can I do that? How can I, you know, take this and turn it into something that other people uh, can, you know, be feel blessed with? And so I started looking into organizations to volunteer with. And I was a little bit impatient and I found all these kind of red tape and training programs. And I'm like, I know how to talk to people. I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing street outreach. I started going under the bridges and aqueduct and just started talking to people. And and it wasn't with any agenda other than I just think you may want to be heard. So can I just get to know you? And then friends started catching on. My brother caught on. He said, you have a really unhealthy sense of fear. Someone needs to go with you (laughs) when you do this. And so that kind of evolved into a little bit of a group that we did street outreach. And then I received a, uh, oh, a God-given separation from my employer, who at the time I was a legal publisher for Thomson Reuters, and they were shipping all the jobs overseas, and they gave us all a very generous severance package, and that was my opportunity to get in the work uh, professionally as well. So I started as a case manager. So I want to come back to something (laughs) you said about your history. Um, You know, we've, I think John and I and Dylan, we've talked with people that they have family members in addiction, um, and some people, they experience it they're on the front lines of it. Other people, it's like a whole different life. Which one was for you and your dad? Say that one more time. Did you like, so as a kid, did you know he was addicted? Later. 
It was later. Yeah. Okay. So when I when we were teens was when my parents talked to us about their their history wow. with that. So and so it was really a, a testament to who they were and how they had you know been impacted by the gospel and being saved and my dad ending up as a pastor after that. You know, so it was really um, it was really inspirational for us. Were you uh, were you surprised by that or did you always have an inkling? Oh, I was shocked. Oh, okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, just kind of thinking about your passion, you know, to helping. I mean. How did that play into that? Or was that something that before you were a teenager, like this is something that had always been a big deal in your life? That had always been, you know, as a, as a, as a pastor's daughter, we, uh, uh, my dad was somebody who always really was, uh, he rooted for the underdog. He was the guy that would, as the pastor, he would just show up at people's houses, you know, teenagers, my friends, Hey, you want to come to church this morning? You know, he was that guy, you know? So he, he, to me was such an example of the gospel and about having relationship and about just having sincere and authentic care for other people that you didn't, you didn't have to work at it. It was just there. And so that was always a part of me. I think it just kind of came alive a little bit Mm. through many life experiences, even prior to my dad dying. But then after that, realizing, okay, God, something's, (laughs) you're saying Mm. something here, you know, what next? (laughs) Mm. What do you need from me? So. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking back on you receiving that call from work and going like, okay, like my time here Mm -hmm. is done. Mm -hmm. How significant that moment was even for you. Can you place yourself back into there and go like, what were the emotions that you were feeling in that moment of like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore? Yeah. Well, I was young. I was a single mom at the time with two little boys. And so it was uh, it was a very heavy hit. But there, again, there was something out of all of those experiences that, you know, divorce and, you know, and, and grief and all of that, that were happening at the time where I just, it was... I felt an overwhelming sense of peace mm. and it was like, okay, this, there's, there's something bigger happening here. And I had a similar experience before I came to the mission as well. So kind of in the midst of that struggle and turmoil, it was God just saying, just wait, just wait, something else is coming. Wow. I actually think it's helpful. Tell us the story of how you got connected to open door mission. Cause I mean, just listening to your story, I mean, I think I might be wrong about this, but I think the stereotype would be, single divorced mom is probably not, you know, I mean, you're talking about literally survival. Like how do I spend enough time with my kids? Yes, yeah. And and here you are at the open door mission. Well, and I'm remarried now. So we're okay. going back when I first started this work, this, this was about 10 years ago. So, um, so when I started doing the work and took that step, that's the situation I was in. And, uh, and coming to the mission was interesting because, you know, I had, I had worked for several providers in the, in the area as a case manager, social worker and doing a lot of frontline case management. So my job as a case manager was to serve some of the hardest to serve clients. So these are the clients that did not show up in an office for an appointment. I had to go track them down. (laughs) So getting to know the neighborhoods and the shelters and the DHS system and all of the service provider organizations was really kind of, you know, it was like boot camp of getting to know, like, this is, this is what any person dealing with poverty, homelessness, addiction, mental illness, this is what they're dealing with, you know? So I was walking through that experience with them. And as a result of that, I really got to know how broken the system is, how 
money doesn't fix the issues, how it's really more about hope and uh, a sense of identity and self and purpose. And and I wouldn't have gotten to know that had I not had those different experiences and really been working mm. on the front lines with folks. And then I was in getting to know how broken the system was, working with other providers that may do things differently than <laughs> uh, that I thought maybe just weren't effective and really trying to um, have a voice to to speak that and not really having one. And then actually my predecessor, Mike Hennessy, um, does, and I still do them now, something called a mission minute. So I don't know if you guys have heard these on the radio, but um, it's just a little blurb about, you know, some sort of issue that's relevant to the mission. And I heard him talk about something, and I think it had to do with placing folks in the hotel Cadillac. And I was thinking, wow, so there is another agency who gets that this is not a solution. <laughs> and so I reached out to Mike and I said, Hey, we, we need to talk. I've been dealing, I've been doing this stuff for a long time and uh, I'm seeing a lot of issues going on. And he, through several meetings and conversations, he ended up hiring me. I, and um, cause I, I kind of came at it from the perspective of as a faith-based organization, who's seeing not just lives change and lives saved, but people really getting truly recovered and gaining financial independence and moving out into the community and turning around and giving back. What, as a provider who's been working with every other agency in the county, how did I not know you guys were so mm. <laughs> effective? Someone needs to be out here speaking on behalf of faith-based organizations at the community level. The mission has always been, can kind of been mom and pop, you know, which is a good thing, which is, I think, part of the heart of who we are. And so we never, ever want to lose that. But being more vocal about how effective our programs are, I think, is also important because ultimately it helps us serve more people. So that brought me into the mission. And I had uh, basically, I came on to start doing the research and development for that women and children's program that they had wanted to do. Through that process, we identified a huge gaping hole in the system, and that's homeless students. And we can unpack that a little bit later if you want. Um, homeless students in the school districts. And essentially, once we kind of created the program, we found a site, we sought out some funding. Then I got the job of, okay, now you're going to be the development director and raise the money for it. <laughs> <laughs> so so I did that for a while. And then uh, certainly when the position opened up for the uh, executive director, I hesitated. I, I really, to, to be honest, I really hesitated uh, because I am a mom, three kids. And at the time they were 15, 13 and Two, one. <laughs> so we're, um, so it was, it was a, it was a prayer. It was a, it was a very spiritual decision for me and my prayer throughout the whole process, because they did a national search for the, for the position. And my prayer through the whole process was God, if I can do this, if I'm ready for this, open the door. And if I'm not protect me from it, save me from it, you know? So I literally put every single <laughs> worry and stress and unknown about whether I could do it in his hands. And so I'm, I'm trusting that he thought I was ready. <laughs> I want to come back to the student part of this um, and we will, and we want to come back to more, but I, I guess where I'd like to go with this is, um, you know, what are things that people say about poverty and, and people being poor that like, just you like shiver with like, <laughs> like, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> Well, you know, I try to be patient because people just really, I think most people have the best of intentions when they think about the poor, when they talk about the poor, but it, it ranges from everything from you just have to get them a job. You just have to get them a house. I know I'm ruffling housing first feathers here, but, you know, just a house or just a job or just a check or just a subsidy and they'll be all better. I think one of the biggest problems we have is people think that 
exclusively money is the answer. Financial resources is the answer. The other thing I think is that people, and I think our systems reflect this a little bit, that people who are poor will perpetually and forever need to continue to be helped. You know, so I think we think that if someone has been battling addiction for years and years or an untreated mental illness or just difficulty in maintaining a job, that they really need to find something that's going to assist them and hold on to that assistance forever instead of having the opportunity to break free from that. So I think those are two of the things that I guess that come to the top of my head. Well, and and it's funny, and I'll I'll say this as as a white male, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in lower middle class, but you know, I I hear you know some of my friends growing up, just some adults, like if they just worked harder, and that's kind of like saying, yeah. you know, I basically was born on third base, whether I was chosen <laughs> or not, and we have people that are basically born in double A ball, exactly. yeah, and the challenge to get there, and I think that that's what you're highlighting. Absolutely, too. yes, yeah, you know, and and we see that re- that just um, reflected every single day with people that we serve. I mean, I think about moms at Coldwater who are working two or three jobs mm-hmm. to, you know, they, they come in, they're sleeping in their cars and they're working two or three jobs. These are not women who are not working and don't have the, you know, motivation or the desire to be better for their children. They're they're really trapped in a system. Mm-hmm. And um, in the minute they start to break free and maybe start to... Uh, um, maybe get, you know, a higher level of income, then they lose their childcare subsidy, you know? So it's just a vicious cycle. And so we see people every day who have the capacity, who have the desire, who have the motivation, who really just need some um, support, I think, to get them there. And again, sometimes that's not just financial. It's it's relational as well. Uh, I, I think what you said before was so uh, big to me, Anna. I think you said that it wasn't a matter of simply money, but it was really what people need most is hope. If, yes. I, if, yes. if I got that yes. right. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that a little for us? Like, what does it look like to truly have like hope and to bring hope to people? Cause that's a, that's yeah. a, that's a, I think some of us can hear that and, and conceptually go, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, but what does that look like practically? Yeah, it sounds kind of like this lofty, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So right. that's all we need. Yeah. yeah. So it's I, I think what that looks like and what I've seen this look like, and again, we're, you know, we're a Christian uh, faith-based organization. And a, oftentimes what we see is that begins in finding identity, mm. the, the, just having an identity. So, for example, for a man in our addiction recovery program, it's an identity that's not, I'm a felon. I'm a a drug user or uh, a drug dealer or something like that. For a woman, it's I'm not a victim of sexual crime. I'm not a victim of domestic violence. So finding an identity other than the identity that has been placed on them by their circumstances and finding that identity in a a being, (laughs) God, who who created them and who sees um, potential and gifts and um, hope in them. And I think that's, that's kind of the foundation that we like to that we think is is the beginning to that hope because then yeah. they begin to see that they're they're worth more than who they thought they were before. Mm. You know, the I, I think the tension is, and let me just ask you this. So um, I'll, I'll use a bad example and then you can clean it up later. <laughs> but, you know, people that, you know, smoke cigarettes, you know, I've heard that there's this experience that when you stop smoking cigarettes, you actually, you gain a lot of weight because you start, you go to another addiction. Mm-hmm. And hearing what you just said, you know, I'm wondering with some of our critics, like you have someone that believes that their identity, 
you know, I'm an addict, you know, I'm a sexual abuser. And then all of a sudden, like, they either become a success at something like, you know, I got the success at my job mm -hmm. or or I, I have the success other where. Uh, how do you help them manage that tension? Because I'm sure it's so hard to walk that line of here's some good success. And we're all addicts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we you know, we've we've talked about that. We had an episode with a guy named Paul Rankin. We have Zeb Huff, who mm -hmm. we're going to interview later. We're all addicts to something. So how do you help guide people through that process? Well, I would say that I would like to defer to the folks who run the program part of it. You can talk to Zeb <laughs> about that later. <laughs> but I think, but, you know, and honestly, it's managing healthy boundaries and healthy expectations is part of anything that we do in life. And especially as Christians, it's understanding, okay, you came out of this, but this is not... Um, this is not something to boast. Mm. This is something to continue to keep you humble, continue to motivate you to serve others through that. And I think keeping that balance, like, you know, our guys that go through our program come back and come and work with the other guys who work in the program. Our moms who have graduated from the Coldwater House, you know, continue to come back and stay connected with us. And I think it's part of part of that managing success with humility, if you will, you know, is is that is staying connected with where you came from. And we try to do that. No, that's great. I um so I wanna I wanna kinda transition. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm thinking about our listeners, you know, the twenty somethings out there. There's been a lot of gentrification. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. some of our listeners, they probably live in cities. Mm -hmm. Others of our listeners, they live in suburbs. And there's there's probably a variety of responses. So <laughs> I guess to our friends that maybe they want to be in the helping poverty game or they they kind of dabbled in it. How would you, as someone that's inside the 1,000-foot level, what are first steps that you would love to see people take when it comes to this issue, you know, specifically for Rochester? But I think in talking specifically for Rochester, for any city, I feel like some of these principles could apply. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as individuals, if we're talking just at the individual level, it's it's a it's a challenge. But I think the first thing is is be willing to become uncomfortable. Step into something, shop in uh, a Wegmans or a Tops or a Walmart or Walgreens in a neighborhood that you may not normally go to. You know, I mean, little things like that where you can just experience a different. It's again, it's not even a neighborhood. It's just experience something other than what you're used to in your own bubble. You know, um, and you know. People often ask me, you know, about the the person on the side of the road, you know, coming off the ramp on on a, an expressway and the sign, and and again, people may not like this answer, but the answer is, if you're comfortable with taking the risk that you do not know what is going to be done with that, then do it. You know that at the end of the day, I don't know what that money is going to be used for, and the fact that it could be used for something that's going to take that person to the next step towards recovery and resilience. I'm okay with that. That's worth a thousand other experiences where I give money where it's not. If it's just one person, then I'm okay with that. And so I think people need to know that that's if it's a risk that they're comfortable with, then go for it. So let, let's talk about even next steps than mm -hmm. that because, um, again, I'll, I'll just use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. 22, 23-year-old Peter, you know, again, I'm not that old right now, but uh, <laughs> he comes to somewhere like Open Door mm -hmm. There's lots of energy and he's like, you know, Anna, if you just did this, this is blah, 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 you know, uh, you know what? I mean, talk about the posture, talk about the opportunities, yeah. because, again, I, I'm yep. sure if we answer that for open door, that'll help people 
with other um, organizations too. Yes. So in any, I mean, most cities across the country have something like us, whether it's another gospel-based rescue mission or it's a Salvation Army or, you know, so certainly getting a step in the door can include things like serving a meal, you know? So like right now, breakfast, this is just kind of to give an example. Breakfast is a much needed volunteer opportunity for us because if we don't have volunteers, we're a lean staff, we're a privately funded organization. So if we don't have a volunteer group come and prepare a hot breakfast to serve to our guests, they will receive breakfast, but it'll be continental, it'll be cold, you know, and you know, so it's food and that's okay. But because of how the breakfast system works, you know, it's pretty easy to prepare. We get to serve. I just did it with um, some folks earlier this week, you know. It's like night and day in the in the environment in our shelter when there's a hot breakfast. You know, it's people are laughing and they're grateful and they're happy. And so there's more conversation, there's more discussion. So for a group to come in and prepare a meal and to serve it and through serving, engage with the folks that they're serving, but don't stop there. Take a plate when you're done and sit down with the folks and have a conversation. You know, so because I think one thing that is really eye opening for people is getting to know the real stories behind someone who is staying at a shelter. Because mm-hmm you're going to get a wide variety of backgrounds coming into that shelter. And almost all the time, it's not what you would expect. Mm. It seems like when you were describing even your own journey into this, that you you started by listening. Like you started by taking the time to just listen to people. And that kind of drove the compassion. Yes. And what you're just talking about right there is even when you're serving, listening. Yes. It isn't a one up, one down it's a it's a taking the opportunity to listen to people and their stories in the middle of of serving and yeah. and living life. So, can you just can you kind of unpack the power of listening <laughs> for us a little bit? Yeah. You know, one of the uh when I was first doing this work, uh I was and I was doing street outreach, we would do oftentimes it's easier, not easier, it's more accessible to do street outreach late at night because that's when people have settled into where they're going to be for the night if they're Uh, sleeping on the street somewhere. And I can recall several nights where it was, you know, we were in those, you know, how Rochester always has our, our few spells of sub, you know, Mm. negative 30 wind chill, you know, in other words, a couple months of that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) 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 So we, when we, but when we would go out there and the first, one of the first times I went out and, and several times after, but this was, it was most mind blowing at that point because I was new at the time was going out and seeing folks who were, you know, they had a little lean-to set up. And this is when folks were staying at the end of the uh, train tracks. And uh, going up, walking up to these individuals and saying, and offering a room for the night. Because the idea was, we'll give you a room and we'll come back in the morning and we'll just connect with you and offer, like, you know, kind of case management services. And not one person of the probably 30 or so people we encountered that night accepted a room. So they were, they chose to stay where they were. And so in being there, realizing that what they wanted, so we would sit, we'd bring, we had coffee with us. They'd accept the cup of coffee in the conversation. That's what they wanted, you know? So even in the midst of whatever they were battling or their life experiences, for whatever reason, not wanting to conform to kind of a, a typical system, provider system, what we really, what, you know, what they really wanted to do was just to have someone to talk to and to hear them. And that was my, my very first experience doing this was walking under a bridge and finding someone there who was sleeping. And I just kind of sat down and I said, I don't want to wake you. My name's Anna. And I just wanted to say hello. You know, I didn't offer him anything. I wasn't there to do anything or to be anything for him. I just, you know, 
just wanted to say hello. And we had a conversation for about an hour, got to know his background a little bit, you know. And even when I do street outreach now, we people want to be heard. And sometimes that's it, because you you may plant a seed of just feeling that sense of connection that maybe you, you know, I may not ever see the fruit of that seed. And that's okay, you know. And and I, I just think I think it's compelling to know that even when offered the things that we think they need, people often just want to be heard. So, you know, I, I kind of want to touch this money issue because I feel like there's, <laughs> you know, there's a few things in there. So, you know, something that I've heard from nonprofits, organizations and providers like and and I say this in the nicest way possible, but we don't want your ideas like <laughs> we you know, there's a whole book that I'd encourage everybody to read called One Helping Hurts. Yes. Like, you know, even what you described, it's great that you're cooking the breakfast, but the even better thing is for you to sit and listen. Yes. Like, really, we need you to write write a check. So. <laughs> You know, as you think about the barriers mm -hmm. to that, I mean, help people realize why is this investment so huge? And I, I think that's important because we live in a time now that everybody has to be so transparent. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think help people connect the dollars to, you know, change lives. I mean, John, would you phrase that a different way? I mean, you work <laughs> in the non or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't work in the same nonprofit field, but I do that as well, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know if I would phrase it any differently. I think Anna gets it. I think oh, sure, we could, sure. yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, I get it. Well, yeah, yeah. Write a check, don't write a check. Is a check helpful? That kind of thing. Is that what you're asking? Or, uh, well, it, I mean, you're a Gen X or a millennial, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, should I do the reoccurring, you know, debit right. card? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, what I, what I would say is this, because, and, and I paused because I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to branch into the political because oftentimes that is an impact to us. So we, we maintain about 99.9% .9 of our budget is completely privately funded. So that's churches, individuals, and businesses. We do, but we also partner with government agencies and our county, our state, our the, at the federal level with HUD, because that really helps us to, we have a saying in the gospel rescue mission world that's if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so we find that as a faith-based organization, it's been critical for us to have a voice at those levels. And mostly because we can be a witness. So I say all that because when it comes to investing, in order for us to be able to maintain our very... Um, passionate view that faith play is a key role in true in true recovery and also to offer a housing model and program models that don't fit that HUD mold, so to speak. So our transitional program for women and children, as an example, that could not be funded at the federal level right now because it's transitional. However, we know that families specifically really need that transitional housing model in order to get them from crisis to independence. If we just immediately put them in independent housing with no support services, they will be back in our shelter. So it gives us time to to rally around them, to hold them close, and to really give them the, the fundamentals that they need to be able to become truly independent. And we're seeing the effect of that. We're seeing that it's working. And so without 
that private funding, those private individual dollars, we would we would be forced to kind of accommodate (laughs) to the general rule. And uh, we believe that there's just there's uh, there's more than a one size fits all approach to these issues. And that allows us to remain really focused on the local needs. So we know the needs of the families and the children and the men and the women right here in the community of Rochester. You know, you brought this up again, and I promise that we're going to come back to it. You know, tell us about what high school or junior high or even elementary students in homelessness, because I, I don't think that that gets covered a lot. You know, what do you experience? You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't. And and I, uh, that goes back to some of the, the bigger issues, um, underlying issues for that. So we have this and this gets a little inside baseball here. So if I get too technical, just cut me off. We have um, at the federal level, homelessness has a definition. And included in that definition is not doubled up. So we have over 3,000 students in the city of Rochester School District alone who fall in the category of homeless. 80% of those are considered doubled up. So doubled up means you're staying in overcrowded living conditions with a family member, friend. Sometimes it may be a safe, stable situation. Oftentimes it's not. And at the very least, if it's not a stable situation, they're not getting to school on time. These children are not getting to school because they're moving too quickly and frequently for the transportation system to catch up. And mom may not have a vehicle. And because of the instability of their home life, they're not able to focus on schoolwork and getting to the appropriate reading level and things like that. So we have... One of the problems, and and for what it's worth, as a frame of reference, every single district in the county <laughs> has students who fall in this category. So what we, um, because of because of the issue with the definition, these students who are considered doubled up are not counted in our homeless numbers, and they are not served by homeless systems. Mm-hmm. So in Many families who are in this category also fall in that working poor category. So mom may be working and therefore ineligible for certain benefits. And so, again, when we look at the impact of homelessness and trauma on children and youth, this is a key issue because it's completely ignored. Well, it has been completely ignored. We've been making significant headway in getting it um, addressed at the federal level, but it has been ignored. And so now we have to be able to maintain some of these programs independently in order to serve this very, very underserved population. I think when you said, so you said 3,000 students are officially on that homeless, in that homeless category in the city of Rochester. Yeah, so what that means specifically is that they lack a permanent regular fixed address. Gotcha. So, and of those of those 3,000, 20% are staying in shelters and other homeless programs yeah. or on the street. We have very we are we are in a blessed enough community that very few families with children are staying on the street, but that's part of the issue and that's part of why HUD will not count them because they're basically saying if there's a roof over their head, no matter how safe, how stable, <laughs> It's a roof, you know, so uh, so that that number, one of the things that we're trying to do that we're working with HUD on as a faith based organization is trying to unpack that number a little bit, because right now other homeless advocates are saying we can't address this issue. There's just too many people. We open the floodgates. We can't afford it. It can't fit into the budget. We can't do anything about this. So the answer, instead of acknowledging them, is just totally ignore them, (laughs) which is not the right answer. So we're saying, well, as a first step, can we at least try to dissect this number a little bit to find out how many of those 80 percent of 3000 (laughs) 
can are in a critical need that they need to be housed or they need to be offered some sort of prevention service. One of the things that we have identified since we opened the Coldwater House, because we serve, we can have 11 families at a time. It's a drop in the bucket. But what we what we started doing about a year ago after we had been open several months was to start identifying when people call and we have to say, sorry, we're full, we're taking more information from them and we're identifying what what circumstances are you in and what would it what would it take to get you out of those circumstances and into a more stable situation and the remarkable thing that we've learned is an average of about a $1000 gift in, directed at one agent you know person or another for a household is enough to prevent that family from entering the system altogether so that includes maybe couple months of back rent because they're being evicted or it's mom is working and ineligible for benefits, but she's working enough maybe to be able to pay a low monthly rent, but she doesn't have a security deposit and first month's rent. So it's, again, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but right around that thousand dollars, we're able to help people get into a more stable situation and prevent preventing them from ent- entering the shelter system altogether, which has been a pretty remarkable discovery on our yeah. end because we're really trying, again, we don't necessarily have a bottomless pit of funding that we can just start opening more shelters. So sure. what can we do to prevent more? And that's something that we've identified as well. So, Well, I mean, $1,000 is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. And, yeah. Right, and, right. And the crazy thing is, is you think about putting $1,000 to have someone have their own freedom mm-hmm. That's a pretty good investment. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so as I think about it, I go, okay, there's probably people listening right now who could give $1,000, and that's amazing. I hope they will. I hope they'll look up Open Door Mission. OpenDoorMission.com in Rochester. In Rochester. (laughs) That's right, .com in Rochester. Google that and do it. If if you can to save a, a a family from poverty, like that's a very significant deal to to keep kids, you know, in school is a big deal. There's probably people, and and now I'm just saying this because I know there there are people out there who have the capacity to do even more. Um, what do you think the biggest opportunities are right now for? you know, people who can do more and they're like, I don't, I don't even know how to get into this game, so to speak, or I know this is an issue and I want to address it. What do you think their biggest opportunities are? From like a volunteer perspective? It could be anything or or from a giving perspective too. I mean, you know, Hey, you're on this podcast. You get to talk about, (laughs) I mean, I mean, you basically get to ask for a blank check. That's right. You can make it whatever you want to make it. We, we love making communication dreams come true. That's right. So, Hey, we're introducing you to our audience here. You can, you can. Well, and my hope is by telling the story and talking about this, it, you know, I don't have to push people too hard because that's definitely. Sure. Something that I'm not always very comfortable with. But I would say this, learning how I think effective, a small, again, small for some, large for others. But, you know, you get mm-hmm. 10 people together with 100 bucks, you can do that. You know, so one of the things I think it's important for people to know as they're giving is that 
I think sometimes people may be hesitant because they want to know that it's going directly to something. Mm -hmm. And I certainly respect that. So we are happy to have when folks want to donate on our giving page, they can designate. So if you designate your funds to prevention, for example, or to the shelter or, you know, to food, you know, we you can do that. So mm -hmm. if people are hesitant because of that, that's one way to one way to give. And certainly to I'm you know, my information is on the website. They can contact me and we can talk about all of the things that we do that we haven't even been able to touch on here, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people can find that thing. Oftentimes when I have conversations with donors, just going through step by step that all the different aspects of our, our organization, there's something that someone kind of gravitates towards. Like last mm -hmm. year I was talking about um, – with the donor that, you know, wanted to give uh, a gift. And she said, so tell me about some things that you're doing. And you could see, you know, the the light in someone's eyes, you know, when you land on something that's that's speaking to them. And this woman was particularly was intrigued by our job readiness program that we had implemented in our, in our men's addiction recovery program and saying, we're partnering with other businesses to get men working, to give them internships, and then they're getting full-time jobs coming out of, you know, they're, we're not just sending them out into a world of, of permanency in active mm -hmm. recovery. They're, they're going out and being members of the community and feeling like they have a sense of, you know, a purpose and uh, they're valued. So different things are going to speak to different folks based on their background, based on their own experiences and, you know, and where their heart is at. Well, two more questions. Uh, uh, John, John's very, fun. John's very nice and diplomatic. I, <laughs> I'm just going to go right <laughs> at it. <laughs> if tomorrow, whether it's a group of people or one person came to you and said, here's a million bucks, what would you do? Wow. Oh, my. <laughs> well, I would say this. First of all, we would probably establish a fund for prevention, um, an actual fund that could be potentially, you know, um, grown year over year. And uh, we would also one of the things that we are really we're praying about right now is is expanding our men's addiction recovery program and adding a residential addiction recovery program for women. And that's something that is, you know, because we seem to really uh, be seeing a lot of fruit from the addiction recovery program for men. We, and we hear oftentimes we've got women and, you know, and we kind of did it, you know, we started serving women and children with the cold water house. We've got women in our shelter. So it seems appropriate maybe that the next step is women in recovery. So we're praying about that. And, uh, and I think um, probably giving some TLC to our very, very old buildings <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that are either, you know, that, that could, that could use some love. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is a final question. So, um, you know, the question is, what does Jesus have to do with poverty? And um, so John and I answer it first. Mm -hmm. And then Anna, you know, whatever we break, you can fix. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, John, I'm going to put you on the spot. So okay. Wow. I mean, I feel like Anna is just a treasure trove of information right here and of, of wisdom, not just information. Information you can get from anywhere, but wisdom. So... I just want to keep on asking her questions. That's where I, that's, that's the spot that I'm at right now. I just, um, I, I want to hear more. Um, but as I sit here and think about Jesus in context with this, I think about his sermon on the Mount. And I think about him saying that, that blessed or happy is another way to put that are the poor in spirit. And um, I think there is something upside down about the way that Jesus works that, that in our culture, we don't understand it. And we put our, we tend to equate 
happiness with that million dollar check. Um, but I don't think that million dollar check brings us happiness. And I think what Jesus is getting to is the state at which when you're, when you realize your need, that's the spot in which God can meet you. And I think that doesn't have to do with just physical poor, you know, poverty, but, but spiritual one as well. And I think what, what Anna brought up about listening about engaging with people. Like it takes someone who who has experienced a level of of almost spiritual poverty to meet another person in poverty and to say, "Man, I just want to hear from you. I don't want anything from you. I I don't need to be the savior in your life, but I want to I want to hear you. I want to listen to you." I think you have to go through a spiritual poverty of your own to to lean into that. And um, I think that's what Jesus would would say is is almost this: you need to acknowledge that you're poor before you start talking about mm-hmm. other people that are poor mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'm going to come in and save the day. Actually, you know what? You need to acknowledge that you're poor first, and then and then maybe you can do a little good. But until you realize that you're needy, probably you aren't going to help a lot of other people either. So I don't know if that's true. Maybe Anna can clear that up. Peter, I'm going to turn it over to you. See what you think. <laughs> you know, preparing for this podcast, uh, today is December 18th. This podcast is going to air in January. We are a week before Christmas. And the story of Christmas is the savior of the universe is born as a helpless baby into a homeless situation. There's no room for Mary and Joseph at the inn. If HUD was doing housing, you know, (laughs) Jesus would be considered homeless. And um, I hope wherever you are, you know, there might be some listeners that we have here that are about to experience homelessness. There's some of you here that are on the way other side of homelessness. I just think we need to let that sink in, that the Savior of the universe came as a helpless baby that could do nothing for himself as homeless. And what that motivates me and hopefully motivates other people is to see every person created in God's image. So when we start talking about, and I'm so glad we didn't go here, when we start talking about <laughs> politics, when we start talking about poverty, that um, I do think number and statistics are good, but the numbers and statistics are only as good as the individuals you see behind that. And so, you know, we threw out a challenge. There might be a listener out there that says, I want to give a million dollars. There might be a listener out there that says, I'm going to start by giving 10 bucks. There's might be another listener by volunteering. It's not about what you give, but it's about why you give. And whether you follow Jesus or not, I, it's hard to argue with this idea that everybody is created in God's image and is worthy of love and acceptance and the part that we can do to relate to people in that way by our time, treasure, and talent. I just hope listeners leave with that. I don't know that I need to add anything <laughs> by both of you. That was no, that was really, really, really well said. You know, and I would just echo that that just that idea that every single person, no matter where they, you know, in the gospel and the kingdom, 
we're, we're all we're all equal, you know. So the the spiritual poverty I think is key, and understanding the unique identity in every single person. So every single person, no matter their circumstances, past or present, is worthy of more, and is capable of more. And um, and sometimes that more is just having an identity that is beyond their brokenness, and having hope that there is something you know there's something more for them spiritually, physically, circumstantially. And um, I think that's that's really what we what we learn by listening. We we learn that by listening to folks, and you know, as we listen to folks, hopefully our hearts, you know, lead us to 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 take action. Awesome, Anna. Thanks for being here with us. And a reminder again: Open Door Mission. Open in Rochester, New York. All right, <laughs> um, and make sure that you check out the Why God Why podcast uh, website: whygodwhypodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, sharing is caring. Make sure that you also review us on iTunes. Uh, Give us a five-star review. That's super helpful. And uh, we hope today that you've been challenged and you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining us. 